A couple of questions for us to chew on in our mind uh, as we start. Don't answer out loud, though. As we think about morning church, <clears throat> who's the most important person? Who's the most important people in morning church? Who are the least important? Who are the least needed? And how do we choose? How do you, how do you work it out? What criteria should we use to decide about you know, ranking us from most important to least important? And where would you rank in that list once we'd drawn it up? And would you rank higher or lower than the person sitting next to you? They're uncomfortable questions to start with, aren't they, this morning? I hope they're uncomfortable. I'm certainly not agreeing with them at all. I think it's terrible, that sort of thinking. The sort of thinking that would rank people in a church family is terrible. But we do it all the time. As we think about who else we'd like to be in a small group with, as we think about who to talk to over lunch later, as you chose who to say hello to as you walked in and who you didn't bother to speak to, as you chose how much attention to give to a particular person, as you've watched people at the front this morning, there's always at least a part of our mind evaluating and sorting and ranking. In many ways, it's understandable. It's the way of our world. I mean, in the sporting world, we're always doing that, aren't we? Who's a better player than another player? Who's the most valuable? In the business world, our value is always being determined by being measured against someone else, another employee, for example, and then our place in the ladder is determined by that. Ranking is the way of our world, which makes it understandable, doesn't it, that we, we tend to rank each other within this church family. But, of course, that also makes it detestable, doesn't it? Because we mustn't be like our world. Because we've been saved from the way of our world. We've actually been saved from the way of our world by the message of the cross of Christ. The message of our King who surrendered all to save us in his death on the cross. The one who, though he was rich, became poor for us so that we might become rich. That was that message that saved us. A message that actually undermines the way of the world, overturns the way of the world. So that whereas the way of the world is all about ranking and self-importance, our way as the people of Jesus is to be the way of the cross, the way of Christ, the way of humility, the way of service, the way of love. Today we're uh, jumping into the letter of 1 Corinthians at chapter 12. If you've got a really good memory, you might remember in morning church we looked at chapters 1 to 4 together, uh, you know, years and years ago, months and months ago. But we're jumping into chapter 12, and if you're wondering what's happened in between time, pretty much in a nutshell, those things I've just shared with you are the truths that God teaches in those earlier chapters. For the first century church in the Greek city of Corinth, they were seriously into status and ranking and who was more important than who in their church family. And so throughout this letter, the Apostle Paul calls on the Corinthians to abandon that so-called wisdom of the world. He calls on them to abandon their boasting and their pride and instead to follow the way of Christ, the way of love. That's true of the whole letter, but it's especially true of the three chapters we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. As we think about our church family, as we think about our place within the morning church family, as we think about the place of those around us, well, God will be calling on us to abandon any sense of ranking 
or worldly value systems and instead to follow the way of Christ, <coughs> the way of love. So make sure you've got your Bible open at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There's probably some Bibles on seats. We're going to look at it fairly closely. It'd be good to have it open in front of you. There's an outline uh, in the bulletin, I think on the inside, perhaps at the back, I'm not sure. And uh, I'm going to pray and ask God to help us as we look at his word together. Let's do that. Let's talk to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that is powerful and it's true. And Father, when you come now to think about it carefully, we want to pray that we'd hear you and that we'd understand what is true and that we would be changed by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, point one on your outline. Chapter 12, verse 1, let me read. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. Just to let you know, with that verse, Paul is beginning a new topic in this letter. And uh, since chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul's actually been responding to a letter that the Corinthians had written to him. So if you glance back, don't do it, but you can glance back later. But in chapter 7 and verse 1, Paul says back there, Now, for the matters you wrote about. And since then, you could trace it through. Since then, he's been working through a number of different topics. And so here in chapter 12, verse 1, we read, well, now, next, next topic, now, about spiritual gifts. Although that's not exactly what Paul wrote. It's just that what he did write is a bit hard to put into English. What he actually wrote was, now about spirituals. If you're into grammar, it's almost like he's used an adjective, a describing word, and he's left out the noun, the thing that he's describing. And so lots of our English translations have supplied the word gifts. Now about spiritual gifts. Because he does go on to talk about spiritual gifts. But importantly, the word that he uses later on in our passage, in these chapters, to talk about gifts is always different to this word here. It's likely that the word here in verse 1, the spirituals, that word, is the word the Corinthians themselves used in the letter they wrote to him. It's a word describing people, people who thought of themselves as the spiritual ones, people who boasted of their spirituality, people who boasted of their spiritual gifts, people who boasted of their spiritual power, people who looked down on people who didn't share their spirituality. They even looked down on the Apostle Paul because he was so ordinary in comparison to them. These were people who pursued and enjoyed status, because of their so-called spiritual knowledge and insight. These are the so-called spirituals. And that's what, or who, Paul turns to address in chapters 12, 13 and 14. He's been, they've been on his agenda throughout the letter, but here he particularly focuses in on them. And he's going to deal with spiritual gifts, but it's spirituality that is firmly on his radar. Spiritual people, spiritual things. If you like, these are the sort of questions he's answering. What does genuine Christian spirituality really look like? What does the spiritual church look like? They're the, they're, the, they're the topics he's addressing. And in our passage this morning, Paul basically has three lessons to pass on about genuine Christian spirituality. And you can see them on your outline. He wants them to understand that there is one truth, one spirit, and one body. We're going to look at each in turn as we work our way through the passage. So as I say, it would be great to have it open in front of you. Firstly then, though, one truth. Paul says, look, first things first, there is one truth that lies at the heart of genuine Christian spirituality. See if you can spot it as I read verses 2 and 3. 
says this, You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Paul doesn't want these Corinthians to be ignorant. They used to be ignorant before they were Christians. They used to be enslaved, he says, to mute idols and pagan religions. That was the life of Corinth. But the time for that sort of ignorance is past, Paul says. The truth is very plain. One truth lies at the heart of genuine Christian spirituality. Did you spot it? It's the truth that Jesus is Lord. Because no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. No one can come to Christ and submit to him as Lord except by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. It's really important that we recognize that there is never anything ordinary at all about someone responding to the gospel like that, someone hearing the message of the cross and submitting to Jesus like that. Nothing ordinary. That is extraordinary whenever that happens, whether it be in Morsiland or in Dubbo or anywhere else. It is nothing less than the powerful work of God's Spirit. It's impossible to belong to Christ apart from having the Spirit of God. There is no such creature, no such species as a Christian who doesn't have the Spirit. And so therefore, you see, Paul says, look, there is no such thing as an unspiritual Christian because you can't get any more spiritual than enjoying the presence of the Holy Spirit of God himself in your life. True spirituality, the presence of the Holy Spirit of God is always revealed in someone's submission to Jesus as Lord. And that is the one truth that lies at the heart of genuine Christian spirituality. And that's what the Apostle wants to clear up straight away as he begins, answering the Corinthians' questions about spiritual things and spiritual people. Because, you see, it would seem, from the rest of the letter, it would seem that there are at least some within the Corinthian church who were claiming or who were regarded as sort of the super-spirituals, the the top-drawer spirituals, the spiritual elite. They're the the fair-income spirituals. Paul says there's no such distinction. There are no super spirituals. So here this morning, do you claim that Jesus is Lord and mean it? Is the direction of your life one of submission to Jesus as the ultimate authority in your life? And Paul says you are spiritual. You enjoy no one less than the Holy Spirit of God himself in your life. That's a great privilege, isn't it? Paul, in another place, says that God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. It's through the Spirit that he has opened our eyes to the truth that Jesus is Lord. It's through the Spirit that he's given us new hearts that we might seek to love him and serve him. That is genuine Christian spirituality, Paul says. And of course, friends, that means that uh, genuine Christian spirituality will always centre on Jesus, won't it? And always centre on his cross, not just in the life of an individual believer, but also in the life of any church. The spiritual church will be the church which is centred on Jesus and his gospel. The spiritual church won't be the church that talks always and mainly of the Holy Spirit. That's a common mistake that people make. That's a common criticism, you know, of DPC, even sadly from people within DPC. I wish we were more of a spiritual church. I wish we talked more about the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a nonsense. The Spirit points people to Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. 
the sure sign of the Spirit's presence and power in any church is not that the church focuses on the Spirit, but that the church focuses on Christ Jesus. That's the spiritual church. So are you here this morning as someone who submits to Jesus as Lord? Are you here this morning as someone um, uh, who declares that Jesus is Lord? Then you have the Holy Spirit. You are a spiritual person. And together, as we seek to honour Jesus as Lord, we are a spiritual church, Paul says. But of course, we are different, aren't we? We may all have the Holy Spirit, but there's lots of differences between it. What are we to make of that? And I mean, when you think about it, there are some people in this church family who seem to be able to do things that are far more spiritual than other people. What are we to make of that? It's to help with those sort of questions that Paul goes on to his next lesson. Not only is there one truth, he says, but let's be clear, there's one spirit. Yes, there are differences among us, different gifts and abilities, but look, their source is one. Point three in your outline, verse four. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of workings, but the same God works all of them in all men. Impossible not to notice the pattern there. I hope you picked it up. There are different kinds of, but the same. There are different kinds of, but the same. There are different kinds of, but the same. It's a powerful acknowledgement, I guess, of two things. Yes, there is diversity. There is differences within any congregation. Um, There are differences, Paul says, in gifts and services and workings. Different kinds of, different kinds of, different kinds of. But look, the source of all of those differences is one. God himself, same spirit, same Lord, same God. So within the Corinthian church, it would seem that particular gifts had taken on special spiritual significance. Some gifts, some abilities were seen as more spiritual than others. And there were those who considered themselves more spiritual than others on the basis of what they could do. And in particular, it would seem from uh, the, the, the chapters to come that speaking in tongues was a particular source of pride and boasting. The ability to speak in tongues in the Corinthian church set you apart as more spiritual than those who couldn't. Paul's response? Well, that's nonsense. No gift is more spiritual than another because they all come from the same source. Different gifts, different services, different workings. But the same spirit, same Lord, same God. In fact, Paul really undermines any sort of distinction between the so-called perhaps uh, impressive, extraordinary gifts and the more boring, mundane sorts of ones. We tend to think, I think, of uh, spiritual gifts as sort of being those supernatural, otherworldly type of things, miracles and healings, that sort of stuff. But things like everyday acts of service, well, they seem a bit ordinary to be thought of as spiritual. But no, Paul in verses 4 to 6, 4, 5 and 6, he uses words deliberately that are very broad in meaning, gifts, acts of service, workings, activities. He bunches them all in together, ordinary and extraordinary, if you like. And he says it's their source that matters. Look at how Paul goes on to express it in verse 7. Verse 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit, the, the, the unveiling of the Spirit, if you like, is given for the common good. All kinds of different kinds, all kinds of different services, works and gifts. But Paul says to each one, the unveiling of the Spirit is given. They're all the unveiling of the Spirit. There's no spiritual elite, no gifts more spiritual than, than others. 
They all come from the one spirit. And so Paul in verse 8 then, he goes on to emphasize that with some examples of all, all kinds of different kinds of gifts, services and workings. Verse 8, I'll read them quick. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another, the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healings by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between Spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. And you go, whew, boy, there really are a stack of different things that the Spirit um, distributes, aren't there? stack of variety. And I guess one of the first questions we ask when we read a list like this is, well, okay, but which one do I have? Or maybe you've got that sinking feeling as we've read it, I'm not sure I have any of those. Let me quickly say that, believe it or not, okay, believe it or not, the focus of this passage, it's not you. Isn't that incredible? It's not you. Paul is not providing a checklist here so that you can identify your gift and feel good about yourself. Or he's not providing a checklist so they can read it and start beating up on yourself. In fact, there's no way even that this is a complete list of all the gifts given by the Spirit in any congregation. Paul's emphasizing the variety. He's not trying to limit it at all. You can tell that immediately by glancing down to verse 28. Verse 28, where Paul has another list of gifts, some of which are the same as the ones I've just read, but others are left out and others are added in. So, for example, in verse 28, he adds to the list of gifts of the Spirit those able to help others, those with the gifts of administration. And then you could go a bit broader and say, well, hang on, this is not the only place where Paul talks about gifts and and so forth given by God to his people. Romans chapter 12 is another big list, and you could turn up that and you could look it up and read it. And once again, you notice there's some overlap with the lists here, but there are some differences. In Romans chapter 12, you could add to the list encouraging and serving and contributing to the needs of others, showing mercy. They're all on the list. Some are what we might regard as ordinary, others extraordinary. But you see, the point from all of it is, Paul's not concerned here or anywhere else really with writing the complete list of spiritual gifts. That's not his point. I assume that Paul chose the particular gifts he has in 1 Corinthians 12 because of something to do with the Corinthian church. Perhaps these were the ones they were most concerned about. Maybe if he was writing to morning church, his list would be different. But look, even if you gathered all the gifts mentioned in the New Testament, there's about 20 or so, even then you wouldn't have the complete list. It's never the point. Paul is never trying to, to limit the gifts given. He's not even limiting the gift to, you know, one gift to one person or something like that. I don't think you can take anything from what Paul writes as to saying, well, that's my gift for the rest of my life and I'll never gain another one. It's, it's not that static. It's, it's not like that. Paul's focus is not on the gift themselves, but on their variety. That's his whole point. But then again, even that's not his main focus. He's stressing the variety, but his main focus is that in all the variety, there is one source. One source. And that is the Spirit. Verse 11. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. See his point? Yes, there are great differences. And where the gifts land is entirely determined by God himself. The spirit, you see, determines the what, when, where, who, how many, all those questions of gifts. Which, when you think about it, immediately pulls the rug out from under anyone who wants to boast of their particular gift, doesn't it? 
or anyone who wants to look down on someone else who doesn't have a particular gift. You speak in tongues. Well, how kind of the Spirit to work in such a way for you. But it is a gift. Nothing to boast of there. And for you to criticise my so-called lack of impressive spiritual giftedness, well, you better take that up with the Spirit. It was his call. See, brothers and sisters, within our church family, you will find all sorts of different kinds of gifts, services, workings, all sorts of variety. But they all come from the one Spirit, Paul says. So let's please not make the mistake of thinking one particular type of gift is more spiritual or less spiritual than another. For that would be to insult God himself, who is the giver of gifts. For in all the diversity, in all the differences, they are the work, Paul says, of the one and the same Spirit. And he gives to each one, just as he determines. But of course, having been given gifts, it's really important, isn't it, that we understand why they've been given. I mean, ever been given a gift when you opened it or when you received it, you sort of thought, why have I got this? So uh, I can think of that time when I was given an incredibly uh, bright yellow nylon jacket. I thought, whew, thanks. <laughs> and until uh, Margie pointed out, she thought I was, I was riding my bike at nightlight. It had helped me actually be seen by cars. And I thought, oh, that's, that's a great gift. See, knowing the purpose of a gift, knowing the reason why it was given to you, can be really important. You're just lucky I didn't think it was a preaching jacket. You'd have to be wearing sunglasses to tell you. It's very important that we understand why the Spirit distributes his gifts among us. It's very, un- very important we understand the purpose. Have a look at verse 7. <coughs> verse 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given. Why? For the common good. Those four words are the... Are the, are the crux aren't they the last ones for the common good our diversity our differences are given for our common good not for our individual good not for our individual glory but for the good of us all and the apostle paul goes on to drive home that point by using the image of a church family being like a body because you see when it comes to genuine christian spirituality there's one truth one spirit and one body so point four in your outline And let's have a look at verse 12. I'll read. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. I wonder if you can spot the most important word in those verses it's one Paul says one body and he says one spirit then he says one body then he says one spirit the variety of gifts distributed given to any to a bunch of different people have has always to be appreciated and understood within the unity that exists we all have different gifts and services and workings they'll all be distributed to different people but they all by the one spirit and all to be part of the one body. In a nutshell, our diversity must always serve our unity. That's what Paul's saying. In other words, our spiritual gifts are never to be about me. They've always got to be about us. 
Now, I know we are very individualistic in our thinking. It's part of our culture. But the culture of God's people is community. It's relationships. It's not me. It's us in God's kingdom. And so Paul, in verse 14 of chapter 12, says it like this. Now, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. One body, many parts, not me, us. And that's the framework, you see, in which we need to understand our differences the different gifts that the Spirit has distributed um, as he has determined. Now, when it comes to our differences in our gifts, there are two main errors we fall into. They're the same errors that the Corinthians fell into. And Paul uses this body image to correct each one of them. The first error he corrects is this one. Well, gee, my gifts are so ordinary. I mean, my contribution is so insignificant. It's not as if I really matter too much in morning church. Not as if I'm a small group leader or a singer or a pastor or anything like that. In fact, I reckon if I wasn't around, it wouldn't make much difference. Recognize that error? Maybe it's one that you fall into. Sort of a spiritual inferiority complex. Check out Paul's response in verse 15. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand... I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? See, within the Corinthian church, there were some gifts that were honoured. But not everyone had those gifts that were honoured. No, not everyone spoke in tongues in, in the, in the uh, Corinthian church, which is where their error seems to be focused on. And it must have been easy to feel really second-rate, sort of inferior. But Paul thinks, gee, that is absurd. That is as absurd as your ear saying something like, gee, if only I was an eye. Who wants to be an ear? What's an ear good for anyway? I don't belong to this body. See, whatever the ear thinks, the fact of the matter is, it is part of the body. And a body without an ear would be less of a body. And if the whole body were an eye, I mean, what good would that be? Imagine a giant eyeball rolling around, getting dirty. It'd be like, a, sort of even worse than that, Mike Wazowski from Monsters, Inc. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's absurd. Paul wants us to laugh at the image because it, it is ridiculous. It's his whole point. It's absurd and ridiculous for you to feel that you don't rate because your spirit-given gifts seem less spectacular to you than those around you. Paul says, look, you are part of the body of Christ. His spirit dwells within you. You are an important part, and you need to recognize that. There are all sorts of differences within our church family, but the spirit gives the differences for the common good. He gives the differences there so that we might use them to build our unity in fact, in the words of verse 18, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And so you may be sitting there in your chair now thinking that, well, boy, within the body of morning church, I'm really just a smelly foot or a waxy ear. You may think that you are insignificant in this church family. You may actually feel spiritually inferior when you compare yourself to other people in this church family. But guess what? God thinks otherwise. And guess who's right? So stop focusing on you and start focusing on us. Stop worrying about what gifts you do or don't have and just get in and work for the common good. 
Here's the principle, and it's a really, really important one. If there's nothing else you're going to write down, I'd write this down. Let's leave the gift giving to God and let's just get on with serving one another. Let's leave the gift giving to God and let's just get on with serving one another. Because you see, God has arranged the parts of this body, every one of us, just as he wanted us to be. And he's done it so that together we might work for the good of each other. So let's get in and do it. Spiritual inferiority, that's an error. The second error though, that Paul points out and addresses is the opposite, spiritual superiority. You're on the music team, finally made it. You're a small group leader and you can't help noticing all those who aren't. You speak in tongues and you know that most people here can't. You excel in generosity unlike the other Scrooges here. That's the second error Paul corrects. Verse 21. Verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. See, in one sense, Paul's making the same point, it's just in reverse. One part can't say, well, gee, I'm not needed. But in the same way, another part can't say, well, I don't need you. We don't need you. No, no, no. Paul says, each part must think of themselves in relation to the whole. Not me, us. Many parts, one body. Same point as before, except that Paul takes it one step further. He actually says the parts that seem less important should in fact be treated with greater significance. Have a look at verse 22. You'll see what I mean. It takes it one bit further. Verse 22. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honourable, we treat with special honour. Paul's having a dig there, isn't he? And anyone who thinks they have arrived spiritually and that somehow they don't need those others who haven't yet. Paul's having a dig at those who consider themselves the spiritually elite according to their giftedness. And Paul says, no, to be none of it. There's, there is to be no haves and have-nots in any church family. There is to be no super spirituals in one corner and not quite so spirituals in the other being looked down upon. In fact, here Paul calls on those within the Corinthian church with perhaps the more spectacular gifts to treat with special honour those with less spectacular gifts. And he would say the same to morning church, wouldn't he? If you've got the gifts that perhaps seem more prominent and more spectacular, you should be especially caring and looking out for those with less spectacular gifts. Because according to verse 24, have a look at it. Verse 24, God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honour to the parts that lacked it. So there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If God's arranged it like that, then that's how it should be in morning church. Unity. No one looking down on someone else or no one feeling inferior, but each person not working to promote themselves, but working for the common good to build up the church family. See, morning church, we are not to be characterised by boasting. That's the way of the world. We are to be characterised, every single one of us, by humble service. For that is the way of Christ. That is the way of love. That, of course, is the most excellent way. And that is where the Apostle is leading us to in chapter 13. You should read it this week. We'll think about it together next Sunday. Paul says, look, in verse 26, in this church, if any one of us suffers, we suffer with them. 
If any one of us is honoured, we rejoice with them. For it's not about me, it's about us. For we are the body of Christ and each one of us is part of it. Remember the principle? We leave the gift giving to God and we get on with serving one another. And essentially that is what it is to be a spiritual body part. It is to determine before God to use whatever gifts the Spirit might have chosen to give me. Whatever they are, my absolute aim is to serve my brothers and sisters. It doesn't even matter you know, whether you know what your gifts are or aren't. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. You're liberated from that because you know what you've got to do. You've got to serve your brothers and sisters. And you can leave the gift giving to God. You, just got, you know what you've got to do. Serve each other. Where there's a need, big or small within this church family, I'm going to commit myself, commit myself to help fill that. And I'm going to pray that God would lift me out of my selfish, uh, self-absorption and instead help me to be a servant. I'm going to pray that by the Spirit of Christ who dwells in me, God might actually make me more like Christ. Because that's what it is to be a spiritual body part. It's service. It's love. Just like Jesus. How about I pray?